You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Jonathan and it's really lovely to be with you and I am very grateful that Jonathan conceded today to sit up the front with me I had to ask him specially and he is wearing a clerical collar so I thought he really must be feeling under pressure today Uh, and it's just wonderful to be with you and I know you've only recently uh, of course been joining face to face and also have the capacity on zoom Um, so it's you know praise God that we can do this hybrid uh, way of worshipping together and and still feel a part of the body of Christ, uh, both across the waves and face to face. I want to start by showing you a very beautiful painting. It'll be familiar to some of you. So if you don't mind putting that painting up now for me, that would be wonderful. I'll just keep talking whilst that's being organised. Thank you. Um, This is one of Frederick McCubbin's paintings. Uh, Many of you will know him. He was an Australian artist who painted last century, sorry, um, uh, painted in the 1800s and then early 1900s. And I want this painting to set the scene uh, for my sermon today because it's uh, a painting that's actually um, Uh, being exhibited at the moment in the Geelong Gallery, which is another part of Uthanong, which is part of your episcopate, part of my episcopate, the area where I minister. And it's called uh, Violet and Gold. And I deliberately chose it because we are in the season of Advent, which is uh, in the church, the colour purple, so violet, and gold is, of course, the colour for Christmas season. So violet and gold, and I wanted to reflect on it a bit today. So to my mind, the title itself is rather divine and um, very uh, worth us reflecting on in this season as we get ready and prepare and we wait and we are attentive, hoping, um, and it's all about the coming of Christ Of course, we know Christ comes at Christmas, that first Christmas. Christ will come again at the end of the age. And Christ comes in the lives of you and of me every day of our lives. So there are sort of three different comings of Christ. McCubbin painted... Um, and this image of cattle drinking at the pool surrounded by tall trees and see the beam of light reaching through the trees and onto the cattle. Light glowing through the trees and as someone has observed, rays of dappled light flickering through the dark trees animate the surface of the painting with flecks of colour. And the way McCubbin captured this light radiating through the trees and across the ground, I think, is miraculous. And you can see that this light, 
that is shared is in the ordinary beauty of early Australian life, if you like, well, it's 1915 that he painted this in Mount Macedon. Ordinary, hard yakka kind of life, I imagine, as it would have been in the Australian bush back then. And it's as if into the harshness of the times, this ordinary life that people lived, it wasn't easy. Just because of the times, life would have been tough. And into that harsh yet beautiful landscape, McCubbin paints this glorious light, as if life in all its struggles is still glowing with a divine radiance. Can we, in our, the days of our lives, recognise that same dappled, glorious light that promises to lighten the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Those beautiful words from John's Gospel which we hear at Christmas time. Those shafts of light that bring hope and guidance and warmth and encouragement. Gold and violet, violet and gold. This morning we heard that wonderful reading from the prophet Isaiah, that beautiful passage of promise that again is often read at midnight mass at Christmas time, Christmas Eve. And Isaiah has been dealing with King Ahaz and he's counseling King Ahaz not to be fearful of the two kings, Rezin, Rezin and Pekah of Israel, who had joined forces to attack Jerusalem. And Isaiah is trying to encourage Ahaz to trust in Yahweh. But Ahaz doesn't trust, and he adopts the worship of the Assyrian gods. And so Jerusalem becomes a slave to Assyria. And thus begins a period of darkness. Now they're in the earlier couple of chapters before uh, chapter 9 that we heard from today. But Yahweh does not give up on Jerusalem. And Isaiah tells Ahaz that the Lord will give a sign of hope. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. We're so familiar with those words, aren't we? In other words, the darkness that they will experience will not be the end. For Yahweh redeems. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light those who lived in the shadow of death, on them has light shined. Not just a tiny speck of light, a glimmer of light, but a great light. The kind of light that could be expected from a mighty God. Violet and gold, gold and violet. And this light is not the work of human hands. It's not the work, it's not the reward for doing good works or even being faithful to Yahweh. This is Yahweh's gift to humanity. Although there will be oppression and suffering, the rod of the oppressor, and the Assyrians will defeat the Israelites, though there ultimately will be victory. God will eventually send a child, a newborn, to deliver God's people and establish 
justice and peace and righteousness. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This amazing intervention of God. And why? Why would God do this? Simply because God longs to be in relationship with us. And God will do whatever is needed to make this happen. And so this newborn child predicted hundreds of years by the prophet Isaiah before he was born. Yet when he comes, he will be the wonderful counsellor that Ahaz wasn't. Ahaz, whose actions had been so destructive, this newborn will also be our mighty God, who will somehow be able to withstand and refuse all evil so that we, you and I, are ensured eternal life. This child will become the everlasting father whose reign will last forever. To us, a son will be given none other than our mighty God, gold and violet, gold in violet, not ending all of life's terror and hardship and struggle and suffering, but powerful shafts of light, healing light that will penetrate the darkness. And how we need this still as we live in our in-between times, after the birth of our Saviour and whilst we wait for his coming again, these shafts of light are not just promised to the Israelites. They're not merely contained in a beautiful 1915 painting. They aren't even the gift offered exclusively to Mary that first Christmas when Mary literally bears the light into the darkness in that stable. Yahweh, our mighty God, keeps bringing the light to us. And what we need to do is to make room for the light. We need to step up and accommodate, make room for and allow the light, just like Mary did, her body literally grows and accommodates and changes in order that God's light and life can be born in her for the world. The journey from darkness to light isn't a linear one from here, darkness here and light there, nor is the path from ignorance to insight it's not as if life is all about darkness and then suddenly the light comes and the darkness goes away forever. Not in our in-between times anyway. But the, constants, the constant, the assurance is the utter mystery that this mighty God would want more than anything, would do everything possible to make sure that he's in a relationship with us. Ordinary, sinful, limited us. We will never fathom it. We don't have to. We just have to reach out our hands 
to receive the gift, which is what you will do very shortly when you come to the table. How we've needed to believe this mystery these past two years, as we've been stretched and tested, and we might well have wondered, where are you, mighty God? Show us your authority, O Prince of Peace. And this is where the season of Advent helps us in our non-linear, ordinary lives. We know that we are living in vulnerable in-between times. We're waiting, and Advent is the time to wait for Jesus to be born anew, born again. And there will be times when Jesus might not seem so mighty to us, if mighty conjures up the kind of superhero figure who will rescue us. These are the times when we need to remember the promise that the true light has come into the world and the darkness has not overcome it. Violet and gold together. Someone has said, it's hard to wait with patience for the coming of our mighty God when the clouds seem dark. But this is our call and our task as Christians to be beacons of hope, shafts of light in the bleak midwinter as we sing again at Christmas time, trusting that God has never left us, looking for the places where God keeps hanging around. God's hanging around because that's what you do when you love someone, when you long to be in relationship with them. Our mighty God comes to us in ways unexpected, sometimes very disguised, where might is shown in vulnerability, where strength is born in weakness, where success is born of failure, where the spirit surprises us through the actions of unheralded people. Violet and gold, always intertwined. And let me finish by reading to you something that illustrates this in a, in, written by somebody else and I cannot better this in any way, shape or form. It does take a couple of minutes to read so I hope you'll bear with me. The 2008 film, The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas, is set in Germany during the Second World War. Bruno, is an eight-year-old boy whose father is a soldier in the Nazi war machine. Early in the film, Bruno and his family move to another part of Germany where Bruno's father has become the commandant of a strange kind of camp. Bruno is often alone and eager to find things to do. Eventually, he wanders out of the backyard and meanders across the wood and finds a high fence Within the fence there are people, and those people seem to be wearing striped pyjamas. 
Bruno walks up to the fence and sees a boy about his own age and he introduces himself and finds that the other boy is called Shmuel. He's fascinated by Shmuel and they have an intriguing conversation and he arranges to come back and talk some more, which he does repeatedly. The two boys play drafts through the fence and talk about many things, often having to break off their conversation for fear of being discovered. Bruno can't fully understand why Shmuel is incarcerated, why he has to wear pyjamas, why he's so thin and so hungry, and what role his own father has in all of this. Gradually, the tension in Bruno's own home intensifies and his mother and sister come to realise what's really going on in the camp. One day, Bruno gets a surprise. He's playing in his home and sees Schmuel working in his home as a cleaner in the dining room. Bruno gives Schmuel some food, but a soldier interrupts and demands to know why Schmuel is eating and where he got the food from. Bruno panics and says, I don't know, I've never seen him before. Bruno quickly regrets his words and soon returns to the fence, hoping to see Schmuel and be reconciled. The large black eye on Shmuel's face tells the price Shmuel paid for Bruno's betrayal. But Shmuel accepts Bruno's apology. Bruno's father finally accepts that this is no place to bring up children and arranges for his wife and family to move elsewhere. For Bruno, this means the terrible prospect of leaving Shmuel so he goes to visit Shmuel at the fence. Shmuel has got some pyjamas for Bruno to wear so he can blend into the camp and not be taken away with his family. Bruno scrambles under the fence and into the camp and dons a striped hat so no one can tell his head is unshaven. The two boys set about searching for Shmuel's father, who's missing. Suddenly the atmosphere changes. Soldiers appear, corralling large groups of people in striped pyjamas towards the large barn at one end of the camp. There's no escape and Bruno and Shmuel are swept up into the crowd. All the people are herded like cattle down the steps and into the barn. At this point, Bruno's mother discovers that Bruno is missing and sounds the alarm. A host of soldiers start looking for Bruno, but it's too late. He's in the barn beside Shmuel. And all the people in the barn are being told to take off their clothes ready for a shower. It's clear they realise this is going to be no ordinary shower. Somehow, both knowing and not knowing the terrible truth, Bruno and Shmuel clasp hands and squeeze tight. And it's clear that nothing in the world could persuade them to let go. As the darkness descends, Bruno says, you're my best friend, Shmuel, my best friend for life. The writer continues. I want to suggest to you that this story, this narrative of Bruno and Shmuel side by side is really a picture of God and us. It's the story of incarnation and cross.
Jesus becomes a little child and places himself at the mercy of adults who can't be trusted to have any idea what they're doing. When they're surrounded by chaos in the midst of hell, at the mercy of cruel powers, terrified, naked, humiliated and helpless, Jesus is right beside us, saying, you're my best friend, my best friend for life. I wouldn't be anywhere else in the world, but right here beside you. Thank you, mighty God, Prince of Peace, wonderful counsellor. Amen. <laughs>